0: Have you found Matthew 17 yet? I hope so. Let's look at it, starting in verse 22. And as I said last week, uh, we left the cross up from Easter, and here's the reason why right here. This is the second time that Jesus foretells his death to his disciples and how they respond, greatly distressed. And then the temple tax. Let's read these verses, verses 22 through the end of the chapter. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax from their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Word of God. Now, to preach this word, I'm going to introduce Mike Taylor. If you are From Community Grace, you probably know Mike or know about him. Uh, Mike and his wonderful wife, Myra, uh, have been longtime members of of Community Grace. We've sent them out to the mission field over the last couple decades. Uh, They serve uh, in medical missions, uh, doing phenomenal work in Central Africa Republic and in Haiti. And uh, while he's in the States, he works at MedStat here in Warsaw. Um, As this this topic came up, the crucifixion, we planned uh, that he would uh, preach this message today, and it is powerful. And it reminds me, as I had my kids in here, this, this first service, my, my six-year-old daughter was, was sitting near me, and, and I remember I think I heard a talk like this when I was about six years old. I trusted Christ when I was five, so I was a new believer, and this, changed, this, this talk changes lives. Preaching this word, God is going to do something great here. I'll be praying for you, as, as Mike comes, Mike, please come and bless us. Thank you. Thank you, Reg. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well,
1: good morning. Uh, it's an honor for me. Is this working? It's an honor for me to be here. There we go. And um, I don't take lightly speaking from a pulpit. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a preacher. And um, for a pastor to give up his pulpit is a big deal. You know, Reg has been preaching through Matthew, so... It's an honor for me to do this. And um, I want to welcome you if you're visiting. Some of my friends are here that don't normally come to the church, first service. Some of my colleagues from MedStat were here, which is really cool for me. And um, the last time I preached from this pulpit, I was in my mid-50s. I looked in my computer. It was about 10 years ago. And this week, I will be in my mid-60s. And um, if I live an average life expectancy in the United States, that means on May the 5th, I will live, have lived 84% of my life. That's sobering. I have two of my daughters in here for them to hear me say that. But what that means is, is that I tend to look at life in the rearview mirror. I'm looking backward at all of life's experiences. I would like to think that I'm a little more reflective as a 65-year-old A little more thoughtful and try to be very humble as I open up the Word of God because it is humbling to preach from the Word of God. Um, Meyer and I have talked about the passage a lot this week, and this morning she said something to me she hasn't said all week. And she said, Do you remember the last time you preached? And I came up to you after you preached, and I asked you the following question Do you really believe what you just preached? And I had preached a sermon about holding our possessions with an open hand and not holding them tight. She goes, do you really believe that? And I go, of course I do, I just preached it. She said, well, when I was pulling out of the driveway this morning, I ran my car into your car. (laughs) And I dented both cars. So I'm so glad you're not concerned about possessions. (laughs) So I'm not quite sure what she's gonna say after this message. But you know, today's message um, is a result of a lot of study from a medical perspective, the crucifixion. I had never taught this passage ever in my life. I didn't understand this passage when Reg gave it to me a month ago. I literally didn't understand it. I didn't know the significance of it. And so I realized that it's not the slides I show you, which we had trouble with those first service, It's not what I say that impresses you, but it's the Holy Spirit. It's God that will impress your heart. So some of you in here need to be encouraged today. Some of you might need to be comforted. Some of you might need for us to pray with you afterwards. Some of you might need to act on your convictions if the Holy Spirit convicts you of something, especially as Reg has been teaching through this book, So, you know, God's Word has the power to meet you right where you are today. And so I just ask you, you try to be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit's saying, and I'm going to try to be sensitive because I got some nice constructive comments to me from the first service, which I'm going to try to implement with you this morning. So I'm going to teach from the second half... (laughs) We tested this thing, and it worked. So I'm just going to point to you, and you just go, yeah, there we go. So I'm going to teach from the second half of the passage first. So turn to Matthew 17, verse 24, and we're going to go back and do the the first two verses last. So it says that they uh, came to Capernaum, and the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And Peter said, yes. So, it's interesting, they are in Capernaum, which is a coastal fishing town on the Sea of Galilee. If you go there today, you can find Peter's house. Uh, He actually had his house there. And so, the disciples and Jesus had spent a lot of time in this region. They knew it very, very well. What is the two drachma tax? It was a half of a shekel. It was considered two days wages, and Moses instituted this in the book of Exodus to help pay for the needs of the temple, of uh, the tabernacle at the time. And uh, that was Exodus 30, 13. And Nehemiah actually talks about it when they went back to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and they only charged a third of the tax because the Israelites were so poor. It was to be paid annually and it was to be paid by every male age 20 and above. And so they asked, Does your teacher pay the tax? Well, this is important because if you remember, Reg told us that Jesus wanted to show his disciples that they needed to preach not just to Jews, but to Gentiles. And they had just come from Tyre and Sidon, which is in the north. Remember he told us that when they went among the Canaanite people? And then they had gone to the east and the south, and they were in the Decapolis, which is where the Romans were. So they had missed paying their tax and these tax collectors for the temple had booths along the road and one of them literally just grabs Peter and says, does your teacher, the rabbi, does he pay the tax? To which Peter replied, yes, he pays the tax. Now, if you go to verse 25, it says, when Peter came into the house, this is the beauty of scripture, Jesus spoke to him first. First is a very simple word. But this demonstrates to me a couple of the omnis about our Savior. He was omniscient, all knowing, omnipresent, everywhere at all times. He knew what Peter had talked about out in the street. And he says to him, From whom, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons? Or from others. So remember during this time, there were kings that ruled. And basically, he's saying, are the kings going to make their kids pay taxes? Well, obviously, Peter says, no. He gets the tax from people other than his children from others. And so Jesus said, the sons are free. So I was perplexed. What does all this mean? Basically, Jesus was saying, I and you are exempt from the tax Because I am the son of God. God is in charge of the temple, the synagogue. We don't have to pay that tax. But then he goes on and he says, However, not to give offense, go to the sea, cast a hook, first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you'll find not a half a shekel, but you will find a full shekel, which is a little silver coin, and that would pay the tax for two people. Now, you think about that. I'm a fisherman of sorts, and this is what we fish with this kind of stuff it's shiny, shiny stuff. In fact, growing up in South Florida, I used to snorkel and scuba dive all the time as a kid. I was in the Florida Keys all the time, and we were taught. Do not wear anything shiny on your, your, your apparatuses, nothing, because the barracudas were attacked to shine, would, would attack shiny stuff. And if you've ever seen a barracuda in 15 feet of water, four and a half feet long, with its mouth open, going like this, those teeth sticking out, you would understand why you don't wear shiny stuff. And so can you imagine this coin just falling out of somebody's pocket, going down the water, and all of a sudden a fish goes, and grabs it. Think about the miracle that just took place. Somebody had to lose two days' wages. Now think about your wage for five days. And if you lost two days of it tomorrow, you would go looking for it. You'd figure out a way to get it. A fish had to grab those wages, had to hold the coin in its mouth and not swallow it. When you go home today, Google stuff found in fish's stomach. And you will be amazed at the things that have been discovered, including World War II bombs have been found inside the abdomen of large sharks. Then Peter had to believe what the Savior told him and go out and use a fish hook, as opposed to a net, and then he had to grab the fish without losing it, open its mouth, and find that coin. So I I believe there's some lessons that can be learned from this and. The first lesson is is that, word of God, I believe every single page of this, every single page, including these little miracles. Now, I'm going to share with you why I think we need to believe in seemingly impossible miracles. So, this is a picture of Myra and me with two of our daughters. That's Rachel and Rebecca, and that's actually the picture of us arriving in Africa in 1989 but this story actually takes place in 1991 and Kristen who happens to be sitting in the crowd with her sister Jo now has a little baby when this story takes place Kristen was about the size of her little son Philo now if you all want to see the most handsome boy in Warsaw (laughs) you can turn around and look at him right now look at that guy (laughs) he is amazing so we had to go from Bogila to Bosingwa to deliver some supplies. So Myra, me, and three of my daughters, and we had a young man go with us named Alexi who worked for us. And that way, if the truck broke down or we had a problem, Alexi could help me with stuff because he was young and he was strong. I was still young at that time too. So I threw two spares in the truck. We take off. We're no more than 15 minutes down the road, and the first spare blows. Now, in Africa, you have a tube inside your tire. Most tires in the States, there's not a tube in them anymore. So I took it off. I put the first spare on. We went 15 minutes. It blows again. I take it off. I throw the second spare on. We were 40 minutes into a three-hour trip, and I had blown three tires. Never happened to me before. Never happened to us again in all the years we lived there. Now, the nice thing about the last tire is that when it blew it blew in a linear cut like this. It was linear, it wasn't a blowout. And I had patches, we always traveled with bars, crowbars to take the the, tube, the tire off the rim. We always had patches, we always had a hand pump where we could pump the tire up, because we lived in the bush and there was nothing around when you broke down. Well this particular time, I said I can't fix that because it's too, it's too big for my patch. So we wrote a little note to the missionaries that lived in Bosingwa, gave it to Alexi. We put him on a bush taxi and the note said, please come back and get us. We're stuck about two hours from Bosingwa. Well, as we're stuck there, an African pulls up on a bicycle and he says, what's your problem? And I go, well, my tube has this linear laceration, (laughs) laceration, that's medical, this linear cut. (laughs) And I can't get it to fix. And he says to me, that's no problem. And he sits down, and he pulls out of his top pocket a little kit, sewing kit. And he says, I can fix that for you. Anyone here ever seen a black angel before? Hmm. wonder what color they are. He sewed my tire. Looked just like that. Uh, Anybody that's ever fixed a bicycle tire back in the day, you always rough it up first, then you put the glue on. And he says to me, he goes, just let the patch sit for 20 minutes, put it back in the tire and pump it up. You'll be fine. You'll get to Bosingwa, you can get a new tire. So, of course, three girls, my wife's under a mango tree over there. I went over to check on him and I come back and he's gone. Just like, Gone. So I said to Myra, I go, did you see him? And she goes, I think I saw him ride off on his bike towards Bosengwa." And I said, no problem. Because Bosengwa for him was a five-hour bike ride. For us, it was another hour and a half. And you know there's only one road between our village and that village. And we never saw that guy. So I think what this passage taught me is that God is a God of miracles. Now I don't know if that was angelic. If it was a miracle. If you don't have confidence in this word, you might say coincidental. But how is that possible in the middle of Africa for that to happen? So the other lessons that I think that need to be learned, the next slide, is that um, even when taxes are judged unfair, it's incumbent upon you and me to uphold the concept of government. Now, this was written from the African Bible commentary by an African who lives in a very unjust society, and even he says we have a responsibility to pay our taxes, The Lord demonstrated his submission to authority in this situation because he believed in the temple and he wanted to uphold the needed tax for the temple. And I think that we have a very delicate balance in our lives between honoring our governments and upholding biblical truth. And 90 days after Jesus was crucified, Peter, who had been imprisoned twice and beaten, said, I'm going to keep preaching, why? Because I must obey God rather than man. Well, go with me to the, to the next, uh, the first passage. We're going we're gonna to go to Matthew 17 and look at the, the first section. And this is where I'm really going to camp out and spend the bulk of my time today. And it says, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And his disciples were greatly distressed. And, you know, Pastor Reg said that the Lord's at work today. And I I think that if we can experience the distress that the disciples experienced as a result of the suffering that Christ suffered, that our lives can be different. We can really use them for the kingdom of God. Why were they greatly distressed? Well, if you look at Matthew 16 and verse 21, Jesus predicted, I'm going to Jerusalem, fall into the hands of evil men, and they're going to kill me. And he said it now here a second time. The, the disciples had undoubtedly seen crucified victims at this point. The Romans crucified tens of thousands of people. And how, was the, how were they going to kill Jesus? They were either going to stone him to death, they were going to crucify him, Are they going to run him through with a spear or burn him at the stake? I mean, how else could you kill? There was no euthanasia. There was no chemicals. It was going to be a brutal death. And they were greatly distressed. Now, I think they were also greatly distressed because they knew the health of Jesus was pretty phenomenal. Now, go online and look at pictures of Jesus. We don't know what he looked like. We have an idea, Jewish. But I love the pictures of him with his disciples where you can actually see muscles You can see a frame that's fit and in good shape, and he had to be. It says that foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man, Jesus, has nowhere to lay his head. This guy camped out. He lived in the woods. He lived in the wilderness. He lived in the mountains. Do you realize that in Israel it can get to 120 degrees, and it can snow there? It snows every couple of years. Do you realize that he traversed mountains, valleys, rivers, deserts, And he actually lived in the wilderness. So, Jesus probably traveled between 15 and 20,000 miles by foot during his lifetime. He had to be in really good shape. And they're saying, how is this possible? How are they going to kill you? You're way too young. At the time, Jesus was half my age. Now, I don't feel old. Some of you young people look at me and say, he's old. (laughs) But I don't feel old. I don't feel old inside. Now, Ask Myra when I first get out of bed in the morning, and she hears me over there, ah, whatever. But once the joints get moving, I don't feel old anymore. Prior to Gethsemane, Jesus was in prime physical condition. Now, let's go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's just had his last supper with his disciples. They're in the garden. He's gone to them three separate times and said, Would you please pray? Wake up pray. He knew. He knew what was going to happen at midnight. He knew what was going to happen at 1 in the morning and then in the early morning and then around 10 o'clock the next day until 3 o'clock the next afternoon. He knew what was going to happen. And so this is the first mention of hematidrosis, which is in the book of Luke. Now, this is a medical condition that is definitely a real deal and it happens in times of great distress. It was reported often during World War II in England When they were undergoing bombing, people would show up at facilities and they had been bleeding, but they had no trauma. And it was because the capillaries, not the arteries that take blood to your hand, not the veins that take it back, but the little tiny capillaries, they ruptured. And when they ruptured, the blood leaked into the sweat glands and the sweat came out. It was blood. Now, before I spoke, my hands were sweaty this morning because I was nervous. I still feel it. You have millions of pores on your palms, your forehead, and your feet. And Jesus was trickling blood. Why? Well, go to the next slide. The disciples, it says, were exhausted from sorrow. This is the same word that he used in Matthew 17, 22. It's the same Greek word, lupeo, which means distress or grieved. In this verse, it's lupe, which means pain, grief, or sorrow. Now, we need to cut the disciples some slack because they weren't sleeping, according to Luke, because they were tired. They were scared. They were worried. And they knew Jesus had just said, I'm going to be betrayed. It's going to happen tonight. And they knew something ominous was about to happen. In Matthew 26, he was betrayed by Judas. He was arrested by the Jewish leaders, He was deserted by all of his disciples. Do you realize that? They all ran off. In fact, one scripture says one of them, as he was running, they grabbed his clothes, stripped his clothes off him, and he ran away naked. I mean, his closest associates were gone. Now, Peter denied him, but according to MacArthur's book, Twelve Ordinary Men, I got a fresh perspective on Peter in that Peter was the only one that stayed in close proximity to Jesus while he was being tried. He was the only one that stayed. Everybody else was gone. Remember they built a fire, and he was around the fire when he denied Jesus three times? That also tells us why this is important. Jesus was probably very, very cold, physically cold, which is important for the pathophysiology of why his suffering was so great. So, around 1 o'clock in the morning after his betrayal, he was taken to Annas first, then to Caiaphas. And Caiaphas was the appointed high priest for the year, okay? And these are the people that did what? Spit on him, slapped him in the face, punched him, beat him over the head with a stick, blindfolded him, and said, Tell us who's slapping you in the face if you think you're the Messiah. Prophesy. And then, if that wasn't enough, he had to go before the Sanhedrin at daybreak, which is the Pharisees and Sadducees, the rulers. And then he went before Pilate. Pilate was the leader of Jerusalem. Herod was the leader of Galilee. Pilate thought, wow, if I can kick him over to Herod, I won't be responsible for his death. And Herod said, no way, I want nothing to do with this, and sent him back to Pilate. And Scripture says that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Prior to that day, they hated each other. He was to be released, to be scourged. But before he was scourged, purple robe put on him, kneel down, worship him like he's a king, crown of thorns. And by the way, those thorns right there, those are the same size thorns you find in Israel today. That's what they put on his head. Wasn't no little tiny thorns. Struck his head multiple times and they too spat upon him. Now, what about the scourging of Jesus? Um, The scourging was an upright post that stayed in the ground at all times. And I think somebody came up to me after the first service and said, Mike, focus on the psychology of the cross more. Because I have a slide that's going to tell you the psychology of the cross. And one of the psychologies of the cross is that they stripped the person to be scourged naked. Now, Can you imagine that would be how you're tried today in this community? Your clothes are taken off and you're paraded in front of people and you're tied to an upright beam. And then two Roman soldiers, one on the left, one on the right, just begin taking turns whipping you with a cat of nine tails. It was leather, and at the end of the leather were iron balls and little pieces of bone, probably from goats or sheep, that were very, very sharp. And what it would do is it would go from the shoulders all the way down through the buttocks and into the, back, the posterior thigh. Now, if you've seen Mel Gibson's The Passion, it's gross, right? Gross. But it's probably very real. When you look at Jesus and how beat up he was, we know that crucifixions, that it went through the epidermis, which is your skin, through the dermis, which is under, the subcutaneous fat, we have fat, and then under the fat is the musculature, and then the bones, and then the organs. Do you realize that Christ's kidneys were probably exposed before he ever made it to the cross? Now, how do we know that Christ was brutally beaten? Let's look at Scripture. Isaiah says, There were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form was marred beyond human likeness. It was prophesied, okay? Revelation says, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. That's future. Now let's look at post-crucifixion. You realize that the Marys, who had been at the foot of the cross, by the way, ladies, Scripture is very clear. Mostly women stayed at the foot of the cross. Maybe one disciple, John, but a lot of women stayed at the cross. So they go to the tomb, and when they see Jesus, they thought he was the gardener. They thought he was the gardener. He was so he looked so different. On the road to Emmaus, it says that. Two of them's eyes were blinded. They didn't know who he was, but then when their eyes were open, they weren't sure he was Jesus, the Messiah. And then when the disciples saw him for the first time, it says they were surprised and they were fearful. Pilate in Mark 15, when they came to get his body off the Christ, Pilate said, what? That guy's already dead? There's no way he's already dead. Crucified victims hung on that cross sometimes for two and three days. Jesus was on a maximum of 10 a.m. till 3 p.m., maximum. So we know that his scourging and his crucifixion were extra brutal because of Scripture. Peter, the guy who denied him, look at this awesome passage in 1 Peter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So many crucified victims were crucified on trees because they didn't have enough crosses They crucified tens of thousands of people so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Now, this word wounds is stripes or deep bruising hematomas. When you get a bad bruise and your skin turns all black and blue, that's what this verse says. It was particularly harsh. Have you ever been in excruciating pain before? Do you know where the word comes from, excruciate? It comes from a Latin word, excruciatus. Ex means out of. Cruciate means cross. Now, I lost a finger. I broke both my tib-fib once when I was in fourth grade, once when I was an old man shooting fireworks with my grandkids and I shouldn't have been doing it on the ice. (laughs) And I've had a bunch of kidney stones, I can tell you that all those things were excruciating. You know, you know. when we see patients, we say, what's your pain? When somebody says 10 out of 10, they're in bad shape. That's where this word came from, excruciate. It's out of the cross because the Romans had figured out how to make it the most horrible death in the world. So let's look at the cross. This is probably what the cross of Jesus looked like. Now, this is a small T, and Jesus' cross was probably a capital T. And the crucified victims did not carry the entire cross up the Via Della Rosa. They carried just the patibulum, which was the cross piece. And that patibulum probably weighed anywhere, as the thing tells you, from 60 up to about 100 pounds. Now, Jesus was strong. He'd spent his life walking. He was muscular. And yet, he struggled with that. Um, So... This cross piece, the patibulum, was on the ground, and that's where they would fix the person to the cross piece on the ground. Let's look at the next slide. Think of the physical conditioning of Jesus and the patibulum being a mere 80 pounds, a via Dolorosa, De depending upon where you start, is anywhere from 600 to 800 yards. And yet Jesus fell while carrying the patibulum. They grabbed Simon of Cyrene, a North African, and said, you carry the cross. And he carried it to Golgotha for Jesus because Jesus couldn't do it. I mean, everything in scripture helps us to see that this guy was brutally beaten before he ever even made it to the crucifixion site. So the way they would have fastened Jesus to the cross was through the carpal bones and this x-ray you're gonna see here is your wrist. It's fascinating because your wrist has eight bones right here called the carpal bones and these are the metacarpal bones. And the Romans knew that right here in the center is your median nerve. And over here on the pinky side is your ulnar artery, and on the left side is your radial artery, if you can go to the next slide. And they realize that if they put that spike right through the carpal bones, A, they would hit your median nerve and cause excruciating pain. Now, I was trained 40 years ago in Charleston, South Carolina, if a patient comes to you and their pain is out of proportion to their physical findings, think neurological. Neurological. Because nerve pain is the most awful pain. There's a lot of pains, but the Romans knew when they put that spike through Jesus' carpal bones, they're going to hit that median nerve, and his fingers were just going to go like that, and they would be stuck like that. He could not physically extend them because of the intensity of the pain. So on the ground, spike to the patibulum through the carpal bones, hits hits the median nerve, misses all the arteries because that way you you don't bleed out. You're going to stay on the cross. But when they put that patibulum up on top of the stipes, the upright, as they drop it in place, the crucified victim's shoulders would dislocate. Now, this is very important for understanding the pathophysiology of crucifixion. Now, I work urgent care and... If somebody comes into our facility with a dislocated shoulder, and it's usually young people like you all because they're playing soccer and they fall and pop it out. When they're laying there on the gurney, and you can tell because it's all deformed, they're holding their arm like this, and they will beg you not to touch their arm. Well, we have to to get it back in place. There's a certain maneuver. And I would say that 99 out of 100... We can't do it at MedStat because the pain is so intense. We have to send them to the ER for conscious sedation so they can knock them out for 30 seconds and pop it in place. And yet we know that our Savior's shoulders were both dislocated as they dropped that patibulum down onto the stipes, the upright piece. Now, if we go to the foot x-ray, if you had an adult male hanging from a cross the wrists would not support it long-term. So what they did is they had to spike the feet to the cross. And there was one of two ways that they would do that. They would either drive it straight through the metatarsals, which are the top of your foot, where they discovered, aha, there's a perineal nerve. Or there are now archaeological findings where they would actually spike the calcaneus to the side of the stipes. So that's why I showed you a heel bone there. There's actually an artifact right now in Israel in their museum of a crucified victim where they spiked it sideways through the heel. So now, if you go to the next slide, it just shows how that they spiked the foot. But I want to spend a minute um, and look at the psychology of the cross. And uh, I, I asked the question, first service, why did Jesus... Endure this. And I asked this first, the first service, I asked this question. If two of these things happened to you this week, could you bear it? Just two. If you were taken to the courthouse and had six illegal trials and you were tried with the worst criminals in this community and you had done nothing wrong, could you keep your mouth quiet in the courtroom? If your best friends that you work with, you hang out with, you consider close friends... You got in trouble, and the next thing you know, they're gone. They're nowhere to be found. Or you call your parents, and you need help, and they have nothing to do with you. Abandoned, verbal mocking, defenselessness, condemned illegally. Not supposed to have trials at night. You were supposed to have 24 hours. If it was a death sentence, 24-hour wait before you actually put the person to death. On and on. There was like 10 things that they did wrong in in his trial. And then if we look at the physical trauma that Jesus endured, I I don't have time to go through all of this. But I asked the question in the first service, why did he do this? Why did he endure this? Do you remember in the garden, he said to Jesus, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. The idea was, this was a period of time in his life that God the Father had ordained, this is going to happen. You are going to die a horrible death within about 10 hours of being in the garden. And he is saying, God, Father, is it possible that we can do this another way? Forgive people of their sins. But then he says, he asked twice, but then he finally says, not my will, God, Father, but your will. So Reg came up to me, and he actually said this. He goes, Mike, I'll tell you why he did it. It was because of the sinfulness of... Of our sins. That's what Pastor Reg said to me. He said, I only have one thing I want to say to you about your first hour. He said, you need to say the reason Jesus died was because the sinfulness of our sins, each and every one of us. Well, I'm going to show you a picture of an x-ray, and if it, if to this point wasn't bad enough, now we get to the real trauma of crucifixion, and that is the disruption of normal breathing, okay? And this is very hard to talk about. This is hard for me right now to talk about this. And I always ask God to give me the strength to get through this next section because with the disruption of normal breathing, a victim on the cross during Jesus' era would be hanging down from their wrists and when they would slump down they would go into an inhalation state as they're up and they go down the pull of the intercostal muscles would make them go (gasps) and then the only way they can exhale fully is to push up on their feet the perineal nerve pull on their wrists the median nerve and exhale (sighs) And then the minute they exhale, they would just drop down and go into inhalation. And this is the thing about crucifixion. It was not static. People did not hang on crosses. It was dynamic. It's the most amazing thing. If you're healthy, if you're not healthy, don't do this. If you're healthy, when you go home today, sit down in a chair, get a stopwatch out, and hold your breath for one minute, just one. And what begins to happen is, is you're no longer blowing off carbon dioxide, which is acidic. And that carbon dioxide begins to build in your bloodstream. And at 60 seconds, unless you're super healthy, your brain is telling you, like with fire, you have to exhale and take in a breath of air. When I used to snorkel, we'd go down to 30 feet. and I still remember as a kid, sometimes I would pop through the surface and I would just blow out and suck in a big breath of air. It's a natural drive, and that's what happened with the crucified victims, is they would be down, and they would have to push up. Now, they could use their diaphragmatic muscles when they were in the inhalation state, and they could do small exhalations by just pushing their gut. But then they would get such a buildup of acidity in their bloodstream, they would have to push up. Now, here's what's amazing. Go to the next slide. The one after that one. The seven sayings. When do you talk? Inhalation or exhalation? You talk. When you're inhaling, you can't. My name is. My name is. And this is what's so amazing about the cross. This is what's so amazing. In the garden, Christ said not my will, Father, but thine, on the cross, instead of using all of his energy to exhale and blow off carbon dioxide so that he could be comfortable and his O2 level would come up, he used that time to speak from the cross. And if you look at everything he said from the cross, only two of the things he said were for him personally. And it's, I thirst, and God, Father, why have you forsaken me? Now, Scripture says they used a hyssop plant. And if you do research, you'll find the longest that a hyssop branch is is 20 inches. And they put a sponge on it and they put wine in it when he was in such agony on the cross. And they offered it to him. Now, this is the beauty of Scripture. Why is that so important? Because the cross was very personal. You could come by and punch him. You could spit on him. You could say bad things to him because he wasn't up in the sky 20 feet like I think so often we romantically think about crucifixion. Luke, who's a doctor, records that Jesus cried out in a loud voice when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And most people who've really studied crucifixion believe that Jesus suffered some sort of catastrophic physical event like rupture of the heart. At that moment, because that's the time every, everywhere else he just talks from the cross, but this time he screams it out in a very loud voice. Well, Jesus' death was confirmed when a soldier came, and look what the soldiers, look what it says here in John. They found that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. Why is that important? Jesus' life was not taken from him, he gave his life for you and for me. Psalm says that not a bone in his body would be broken because the crucified victims, if the Roman soldiers were tired of watching them yo-yo up and down on the cross and hear the moaning and the groaning, they would just go over and crush their tibia in that front leg and they could no longer push up on the tibia because it was broken and they would die within about five minutes of asphyxiation. Not our Savior. He died because he wanted to die. You know, we have history of the apostles' deaths in his book, 12 Ordinary Men, John MacArthur. And the only one I want to focus on is Peter. Remember Peter denied him? Do you know that Peter's wife was crucified? And do you know that Peter refused to be crucified upright? He asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't think it was right to be crucified the same way that Jesus Christ was crucified. Do you see the transition in Peter's life? To go from being scared, a little servant girl says something to him. He says, no, I am not a Galilean. No, I wasn't with that man. I'm not one of his disciples. Two, within 90 days, in prison, beaten, and at the end of his life, allowed himself to be crucified upside down for Jesus Christ. Now, this story is so personal for me, very personal, for two reasons. One, it impacted my wife and me to the point that we took our little family and moved to Africa to be missionaries. We wanted to share that message with other people who may not have ever heard that message before. It's also very personal because I told Myra this week that my mother, who was pretty tough, she raised four boys, and she was known to smack us pretty hard when we got out of line. She always cried at communion. We were grace brethren my whole life. And so the threefold communion where we wash feet and we have the love feast and we have the bread and the cup, my mom always cried and she wasn't a crying sort. And I finally figured it out. She understands this. She understood this way before I ever understood it. But I'm gonna tell you what's really noble is this next slide. And this right here, my friends, is the absolute beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'll meet this woman in heaven. My kids call her Ata, which means grandma. She was born in the 1920s or 30s, probably gave her life to Jesus somewhere around the 30s. Do you know some of the first missionaries from North America went to Africa at the turn of around 1910, 1915? This woman was one of the first converts after hearing this story in the Central African Republic. She's alive today. She's our favorite person to see every time we go back to Africa. Atta, we just love her. Her son is our medical director, Dr. DeBona Paul. And the picture of Paul tending to a guy with a bloody thigh, and if you look closely on the ground there, you see blood all over the ground. I couldn't show you the full picture because there is a dead man two feet from the guy on the mat. You see what happened at our concession at our center. There was a fight between rebels from the north and the government, and they decided to have a firefight at the Three Strands Hospital. And when they left, they left two wounded rebels from Chad on our concession. Now, if you know anything about Africa, you don't mess with a rebel. You don't help a rebel. You let that guy bleed to death. But you see our doctor, Dr. Paul, with a white tourniquet on his leg, They've got an IV bottle going in him. They took that guy to surgery, and they saved his life. You know what happened the next day? The government heard he was there, and they came back. And they said to Dr. Paul, what do you think? What are you doing? That guy's a combatant. And Paul looked at him and said, this is a Christian hospital. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. And you know what it cost him? It almost cost him his life that day they took that guy out right there and they killed him they took a guy out on our concession and shot him 13 times in front of all of our people brutality like you wouldn't believe and yet dr paul said i don't care because we serve the lord jesus christ so i i would hope today you'd consider uh what your relationship is to jesus and uh you're going to come up and play for us brother And um, I'm hoping you can reflect in a fresh way regarding the supreme sacrifice. And even as we sing this song, just uh, really uh, reflect upon this song.